Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Jenny and I continue with our discussion of C.S. Lewis's essay, Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism. Okay, so the English Hegelian, we, we find that funny, but what, what's so funny about that? Well, the Hegelian view is mm-hmm. really that there is no such thing as the transcendent. Mm-hmm. That is, everything occurs at the level of the imminent. Right. The world of experience. There is no world beyond this world. Right, right. There is no God in that sense, except the God of this world, which is the spirit of this world. And that's all there is. Right, and that kind of trickled down to to Marx. Right, so Marx was the inheritor of the Hegelian tradition. Right. And Marx said, look, there is no such thing as this spirit of the world mm-hmm. that Hegel talked about. Instead, all there is is material reality. Right. And therefore, the imminence is simply the material reality in which we live. That's all that there is. Right. And we're we're seeing that now. You covered all of this in your Hegel series. The series, it's called Hegel, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. At great length. Yeah, yeah. And you covered in Hegel, the Ugly, you covered how Marx took Hegelian thinking a step further. Right, right. And the Hegel, the Ugly Mm -hmm. is really... Marx taking off mm-hmm. and destroying even the good, the valuable in Hegel, because Hegel actually deeply valued the traditional Western society right. that had been built. Mm-hmm. And yet Marxian philosophy turned against yeah. the whole structure of the Western world right. and sought to destroy it. Right. And that's where we are today. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then Lewis goes on to say, Thirdly, I find in these theologians a constant use of the principle that the miraculous does not occur. Thus, any statement put into our Lord's mouth by the old text, which, if he had really made it, would constitute a prediction of the future, is taken to have been put in after the occurrence, which it seemed to predict. Right. This is very sensible if we start by knowing that inspired prediction can never occur. Similarly, (laughs) I hate that word. (laughs) In general, the rejection as unhistorical of all passages which narrate miracles is sensible if we start by knowing that the miraculous in general never occurs. Right. So we start with that presupposition. Mm -hmm. There is no transcendent. Right, right. And if there is no transcendent, then any sense in which we find something in the Bible that is predictive mm-hmm. must have been written after, after the prediction came true. Right, right. And so it's, there is no transcendent. That's right. what we bring to the text. And anything that's found archaeologically after, supposedly after, cannot have happened during the time of Joshua. Right. So <laughs> the Mount Ebal de Fixio. Mm-hmm. Someone like Chris Drolston will say, we know mm-hmm. that the Hebrews didn't have a written language until after the 10th century. Right. And therefore, if there is any evidence that there is writing before, before. that, it's a Hebrew writing, it can't be true. Right. And so 
he has a presupposition that won't allow him to actually admit the evidence that's in front of him. Right, right. And, and in the meanwhile, you have to shut up, sit down. You should sit down, shut up, and stay out of our faces. Right, right. Because we know it's mm-hmm. not true. Right. And in regards to the Mount Ebal curse tablet, kind of reminds us of Luke 1940. Jesus says, if they are quiet, the stones will cry out. And here's this little lead tablet crying out. Can't keep quiet. And that's what this series on the Christian Atheist is all about. Mm-hmm. That's right. Let the lead speak. We want the tablet to be able to be what it is. Right. Whatever that happens to be. You and I, however, mm-hmm. are refusing to be silenced. Right. The agenda of the critics is to silence this artifact, Mm -hmm. to deny it a platform from which it might, and I emphasize might, rewrite the scholarly orthodoxy that they are so stridently defending. Right, and it's kind of what goes on all the time. All the time. Mm -hmm. And, And rightfully so, because... Any discipline needs to defend itself. Orthodox Christianity has had to defend itself against all kinds of heresies throughout time. And so it's not improper for those who are the keepers of a discipline to defend their discipline. But it must be done honestly. Right, exactly. And I think that's where they're failing so badly here. Mm -hmm. Robert Cargill says explicitly in his Myth Vision interview, mm-hmm. that he wants to shut down any possible venue that would give airtime to this curse tablet right. and those who are taking it seriously. Right. He says, essentially, if you allow them to present their side, you're going to lose all credibility. Mm-hmm. It's a familiar playbook. It's exactly the same playbook that Adam Zertal faced when he discovered what he thought was... Joshua's altar. Joshua's altar, Right, right, exactly. And this is the essence of Marxism. Right. We know what the truth is. Mm -hmm. And if anybody presents evidence that is empirical and real otherwise, you must be wrong. Because Mm -hmm. the theory says that can't be true. (laughs) So we privilege theory over the empirical facts. And it's getting to the point where we know that there's no genders. Yes, it's the same program. Yeah, it's getting insane now. We have a theory about the nature of gender. And we're not going to allow empirical reality to intrude upon that theory. Right, right. So there is no such thing as male and female. We can't define the two because they don't exist. Right. Why? Not because empirical reality has taught us that, but because our intellectual, rational theory Mm -hmm. has made a claim. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to allow reality to abrogate that claim. Right, right. So, you know, they, they want us to shut up and sit down. Okay, so the points so far were... That one, they lack literary judgment. Two, they seem to be able to read between the lines. 
and they claim they, to be able to read yeah, between the lines. And yeah. of course their claim is ridiculous. Right, right. Because they can't even read the text in front of them. Exactly. The next point that Lewis makes in this essay is that these critics are reconstructing the origins of the text from hints in the text itself. And what is this known as? Source criticism. Okay. All right. The presuppositions brought to the text, they're not drawn from the text as they claim. Right. 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 They assume there is no transcendence. Right. And if there is no transcendence, then there is no way of predicting the future. And therefore, anything that predicts the future accurately right. must have been written after the fact, right. not before. Right. Like like Lewis said, the, the canon, if miraculous, therefore unhistorical. Right. 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 And that's something they bring to the text. Right. It's not something they discover from not the text. Not something they learn from because it. Because the text itself is presenting itself uh-huh. as though it's predicting the future. So Lewis says, if one is speaking of authority, the united authority of all the biblical critics in the world counts here, that is on the question of the reality of the miraculous, for nothing. On this they speak simply as men, men obviously influenced by and perhaps insufficiently critical of the spirit of the age they grew up in. All this sort of criticism attempts to reconstruct the genesis of the text it studies, what vanished documents each author used when and where he wrote, with what purposes, under what influences. This is done with immense erudition and great ingenuity, and at first sight, it is very convincing. Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. This reminds me of your Bible brisket. Yeah, exactly right. The theory that they come up with is immensely powerful Mm -hmm. in terms of the way in which it attempts to explain all of the things that it comes up with. Right. And it is intellectually compelling. It's like, wow, this is an incredible theory. It seems to explain all of these things, and it seems to be able to do it in a way that sews up all of the various parts, and it sounds incredibly convincing. Right, exactly. And enough to convince maybe a first-year Bible student uh, at yeah, a Bible college. Or even someone who has studied it their entire lives. Mm-hmm. And so the entire secular yeah. tradition mm-hmm. buys into this. Because after all, once you start with the supposition yeah. that there is no transcendent, it has to be explained in some way. Right, right. And right. so you weave a rational structure that brings it all together in such a way that shows it's just a human construction. Right. And, and so there it is. It's easy. It's to completely sw- compelling as a rational story. Right. It's easy to swallow and you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> okay. So the, this, this makes me laugh what Lewis says next. What forearms me against all these reconstructions is the fact that I have seen it all from the other end of the stick. I have watched reviewers reconstructing the genesis of my own books in just this way. <laughs> right. And this has been my problem with the higher criticism from the start. Yeah. At yeah. the beginning of this essay, Lewis says, it's hard for me. He said, look, I'm ignorant about right. all of these things. I've never been able to bring myself to study them seriously. Right. Because I have no confidence in my teachers. Mm-hmm. And this is the problem for me. When I look at the reconstructions they make, 
They are incredibly powerful, rational, but they're stories that you've woven. Right. And absent any compelling evidence, mere speculation doesn't count here. That's all they are. They may be compelling as stories, but do they fit the facts? Mm -hmm. And we don't know. Right. And why should I choose your compelling story over what the story itself tells me? Right. And that, for me, ultimately boils down to, like, when I read Shakespeare, I read those plays, and I think to myself, this is written by this author named Shakespeare, and then I encounter these critics who say, oh, no, it wasn't Shakespeare who wrote it. Let me show you how this person put in this and that person put in that. And it sounds incredibly compelling. Like but one. at the same time, when I read Shakespeare, it's Shakespeare. Yeah, It's that play. It's that amazing piece of literature. And when I look at the Bible, I find this amazing piece of literature and your way of carving it up, however rationally compelling it may be, falls apart in the face of the reality of the literary text that I have before me. <laughs> it's just too big to be contained by your little rational story. Mm -hmm. And I frankly don't care if the way you're explaining it ends up being real. Because even if it has been a composite of a whole bunch of documents coming together, all of that composite bears the presence, the reality of God in it. And that reality transcends the story that you tell me. <laughs> it makes me think of Puddleglum. Do you remember him when he, what he said? Mm-hmm. He says, I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Do you remember what he said to the witch when she was trying to convince him there was right. no Narnia? Right. There is no Narnia, she says. And he says, oh, well, if that's the, the story you tell and if it's the truth, I like the story of Narnia better. I think it's actually a better story. And I'm going to hold on to that. Even if the story you tell is rationally compelling from your perspective. And that really is what's happening with the JEDP, the higher criticism. They present a rational case. There it is. Yeah. Choose. Is it this way or is it this way? But as Lewis says, the authors of the text are dead. Right. What does it boil down to? A choice of faith in God? Or a choice of faith in this rational vision right. that is built from fundamental assumptions that there is no such thing as transcendence. Mm -hmm. And if you want to buy that, okay. I was there for most mm -hmm. of my life. I explained it away. But it doesn't work that way mm -hmm. for me. It just doesn't. Right. Because I lose everything of value right. that way. And so I choose, as I say, at the end of the Christian Atheist each time, every episode, I choose Christ's side. Mm -hmm. So I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. There are always two sides there. Mm -hmm. 
One is real and true. Yeah. One is not. Faith picks a side and follows where that leads. That's right. But I stand with Christ on right. this side. Right. And I think it's as completely rational as the other side. Right. There are two competing visions. Choose one or the other. But I think it's completely rational to stand on Christ's side. Right. So getting back to the essay where Lewis is talking about the reconstructionists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he says what the value of such, oh, and he was talking about them, <laughs> his reviewers reconstructing him. Right. <laughs> he says what the value of such reconstructions is I learned very early in my career. I had published a book of essays and the one into which I had put most of my heart, the one I really cared about and in which I discharged a keen enthusiasm was on William Morris. In almost the first review, I was told that this was obviously the only one in the book in which I had felt no interest. Now, don't mistake, the critic was, now I now believe, quite right in thinking it was the worst essay in the book. Where he was totally wrong was in his imaginary history of the causes which produced its dullness. Since then, I watched with some care similar imaginary histories, both of my own books and of books by friends whose real history I knew. Reviewers, both friendly and hostile, will dash you off such histories with great confidence, will tell you that public events had directed the author's mind to this or that, what other authors had influenced him, what his overall intention was, what sort of audience he principally addressed, why and when he did everything. <laughs> right. And so you can build a rational story that seems like the only way in which you can possibly understand the facts. And yet the facts can be entirely otherwise. Mm -hmm. That is, just because your rational story is incredibly compelling doesn't mean it's true. Mm -hmm. Truth is another thing. And truth is all too often stranger than fiction. Right, right. And the assured results of modern scholarship. Right. Are often simply wrong. Yeah, and, and only because the men who knew the facts are dead. Right. And Lewis says, my impression is that in the whole of my experience, not one of these guesses, that is, in relation to his own mm -hmm. writings and the writings of those of people he knew he, around him. Not yeah. one of those guesses by the critics has on any one point been right. Right. That the method shows a record of 100% failure. You would expect that by mere chance, they would hit as often as they miss. But I can't remember a single hit. <laughs> Makes me think of some of the commenters on you. <laughs> accusing you of yeah the things i accuse they accuse me of yeah yeah that's true <laughs> uh, like that one who accused me of having what was it a oh, patreon account a patreon and you're account, getting right. money from and I, was, I was funding my patreon account. and you were working for the c.s lewis institute and I was working for the c.s lewis institute neither of which is were true, true right? and yet they had a perfectly rational they had a whole story right around that right Right. And Lewis <laughs> sees exactly the same thing. The idea that J.R. Tolkien 
was talking about the nuclear bomb with the ring. Mm -hmm. If you look at the historical evidence, it seems that that must be the case. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. It wasn't. It absolutely was not. Right. And I think this is exactly the same thing with the JEDP theory. Yeah. With the higher criticism. Without a doubt, they build a compelling case. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that case true or isn't it? Right. And they build a compelling case that the earth is flat. (laughs) Right. And flat earthers can give you an amazingly powerful story that really shows up all the evidence that you provide them Mm -hmm. that it's true. And so rationality cannot be the only way in which we determine things. It must also be subject to empirical reality. Right. And also basic rational structures of, wait a second, this is what the Bible says. In most cases that we've been able to determine, when there's been a conflict between what the Bible says and what the evidence says, the Bible ends up being right over and over and over again. And so we are rational in saying to ourselves, okay, you developed this great story about why it may be this way. That's an interesting story. And who knows? It may be right. But I'm going to place my faith over here because over and over again, when there has been a conflict between the two, the Bible ends up being right almost all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, there's still some stuff out there that we don't know. But... (laughs) Deciding on the basis of what we don't know is not a good strategy. Right, right. Okay, so let's move on to Lewis's final point, the transitoriness of the results of modern scholarship. Maybe I'll read this quote. You must face the fact he does not expect the present school of theological thought to be everlasting. He thinks, perhaps wishfully thinks, that the whole thing may blow over. I have learned in other fields of study how transitory the assured results of modern scholarship may be, how soon scholarship ceases to be modern. The confident treatment to which the New Testament is subjected is no longer applied to profane text. There used to be English scholars who were prepared to cut up Henry VI between half a dozen authors and assign his share to each. We don't do that now. When I was a boy, one would have been laughed at for supposing there had been a real Homer but Homer seems to be creeping back. Everywhere except in theology, there has been a vigorous growth of skepticism about skepticism itself. Yes. Fatism. And and that is something that we should be aware of. Yeah. Because Lewis is saying, just down from this, he says, really what I'm preaching is a form of skepticism. Yeah, yeah. I want you to be skeptical. Of the skeptics. Of skepticism, yeah. Right. And this is what I'm saying about the critiques made by Chris Rolston and Robert Cargill of this curse tablet. They are being critical, but we don't have to accept their skepticism just because they're skeptical. Right. We should be skeptical of them, too. Right. Because despite their certainty in their claims. Yeah. They're fallible human beings. Right, exactly. And all I'm asking everyone to do mm-hmm. is to look at what they say with a skeptical eye. Mm-hmm. 
Just because they're skeptics of what has been presented doesn't mean that their skepticism is valid skepticism. Lewis says that many of these things are fads, and he is certainly yeah. right. There is in academia, just as there is in clothing, a series of fads that develop mm-hmm. and that academics follow. And one of the fundamental fads that we are dealing with now is what we've talked about earlier, yeah. the Hegelian age in which we deal, mm-hmm. that there is no such thing as a transcendent reality. Right, right. And that is something we have bought into at such a high level that it's hard for us to even think of it as anything but a reality that we deal with in academia yeah. because they no longer even think of it as I mean, as an academic myself, I remember dealing with this in faculty meetings. The idea that anyone would believe in a transcendent reality was so laughable to everyone in those meetings that if you would propose it, you were basically an idiot. (laughs) Everyone thought that. Right. And yet... The vast majority of humanity previous to the 19th century believed in a transcendent reality. And so in their faddish notion of reality, they are dismissing almost the entire history of humanity. It's probably not a good intellectual position to hold. No. Lewis says here, this seems to involve knowing about a number of long dead people, things of which I believe few of us could have given an an accurate account if we had lived among them. Yes. (laughs) I could not speak with similar confidence about the circle I have chiefly lived in myself. I could not describe the history even of my own thought as confidently as these men described the history of the early church's mind. Right. Okay, so... Let's close this out by talking about the last thing that Lewis talks about. When we listen to these men, I mean, these are learned people, right? And they have such conviction and confidence, but it it just doesn't seem right to me what they're saying. Right. But then you say this all the time, actually. Yeah. You You say the people that I play on all of these YouTube videos that I bring up. Yeah. And you say to yourself, hmm. This doesn't seem right to me, but you're afraid to say that. Right. You're afraid to actually make the claim. Right, because like, who am I? Yeah, who am I to right. say that? And I, I felt that way so much yeah. in my early life as well, especially as an academic. Mm-hmm. And then I felt myself just kind of going along with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And Lewis said he did the same right. in relation to some of the doubts he had about the English Hegelians. Mm-hmm. And And yet, he said, they came tumbling down on the basis of the doubts that I was not willing to express. Right, right. And I think all of us, when looking at so many of the things that are going on today, like the idea that there's no valid distinction between men and women, Mm -hmm. we know better. And yet we're afraid. We don't say anything. Because of the experts that are speaking out, like in relation to this mounted ball, Defixio, Robert Cargill, and Chris Chris Rolston. These are the experts. Who are we to doubt what they say? And yet 
the basic common sense reality tells us mm-hmm. they haven't looked at the evidence. Yeah, they've and said so that themselves. what right do they have to have an expert opinion about evidence that they've not even fully examined exactly. themselves? Exactly. So maybe we should be willing to stand up mm-hmm. in this world in which idiocy is taking over right. and express our common sense Right, not be cowed into silence, but and not stand, be cowed into stand silence. on the truth. Yes. Right. Stand up, speak the truth, mm-hmm. and say, wait a second, I may not be an expert like you are, mm-hmm. but things aren't adding up for me. Things aren't right. Right? There's something wrong here, and it's time we do that. Right. We used to be able to do that <laughs> yeah. without being silenced right. as much as it is today. Yeah, there is an official... Mm-hmm an official attempt to silence any opposition. And it is powerful. It is being directed very seriously against someone like Peter Vanderveen. Mm -hmm. He has been told in no uncertain terms by the critics, you better shut up and stop talking about the evidence of this that you've seen with your own eyes, or you're going to lose your job. You're going to be sorry. And you'll be sorry. And you'll lose your means of being able to support yourself. Right. right. It's a threat. Right. And it's a very real threat. Mm -hmm. And it's a threat that has been carried through many, many academics for speaking their mind have lost their jobs. I fear mine, as you know very well. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very real possibility that as I speak my mind in my classes, I may very well lose the job that allows us to do what we're doing. Exactly. Exactly. Romans one twenty two through 23 says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men. Yes. And we make God in man's image. And we worship and serve the creature, nature, climate change, trans more than the creator who is blessed forever yes so we want to think of god as our indulgent grandparent or as a santa claus yeah and god is not that right and god does not wink at our wrongdoings yeah. or the flouting of the natural order yeah we may very well want to claim that we can decide what our gender is mm-hmm. but we're born with our gender right and we don't have a choice to make right. in relation to it right now and we may not feel comfortable with it mm-hmm. that may be a reality that we have to deal with right but it's still reality right the reality for you is you're a diabetic yeah type one yeah and i don't get to decide <laughs> choose not to have my blood sugar run high when i eat too much candy in a day or your blood sugar drops Unexpectedly, right, unexpectedly when it drops. jobs that we're trying to do when we're doing photo jobs. Right. It's not a matter of choice for me. I have to deal with the reality of what it is. And it makes you uncomfortable. Right. And And I don't like it. And it makes you unhappy. And it makes me have to work hard to correct the issues of reality that I'm forced to deal with. Right. But it would be foolish of me to simply deny it. Yeah. To choose to create reality in my own image right. instead of deal with 
reality as it is given to us. Right, exactly. We live in a crazy, crazy world (laughs) in which we think we can create reality. Right. We don't get that choice. Right. (laughs) So we don't get to form reality. We have to submit to it. Yes. And this reminds me of T.S. Eliot. Yes. Because you said when we come to Christ and we find the reality, it's not a matter of all of our wild subjective desires being fulfilled. Right. We don't get to create reality. We find reality as it is given to us. Mm -hmm. And we can say it was satisfactory. Exactly. Because God has given us what we need and what we desire, Mm -hmm. but it's not a matter of fulfilling our imaginary desires, but the real desires that God has given us. All of those things bring us to the satisfaction, the realization that there are real boundaries in which our life exists and to which we must submit And in submitting, we find that reality beautiful, wonderful, and satisfactory. Do you you remember the the end of that poem, Journey of the Wise Men? Journey Journey of the the Magi, Magi, I mean. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. And that's the end of Journey of the Magi. And that's the end of the Journey of the Magi. And a little bit before the ending, finding the place it was, you may say, satisfactory. Okay, John, I think that was a good place to end this essay by C.S. Lewis. This past Monday on The Christian Atheist, we said that you were continuing your JEDP Mount Abal and this essay discussion, and you'll be continuing it this coming Monday. What's going to be this coming Monday? Yeah, we're kind of working on the concluding of this series. Yeah. Bringing together all of the threads that we've laid out yeah. from the beginning. And you've laid a lot of threads and, out. Yeah, and and trying <laughs> to bring it to a conclusion mm-hmm. that shows that we don't need to accept the leftist view of things. Mm-hmm. The JEDP theory is not any more compelling than the actual belief that the Bible is what it claims to be. Right. And the evidence for that is as good or better than that offered by the alternative. Right. And I think in the end, there's a place where the evidence, the solid ground turns to maybe liquid and maybe even to gas. I'm not sure (laughs) where you can't stand anymore and you have to make a decision and say, am I going to believe this or that? Yeah. I mean, it comes down to that with everything, right? I think, in life. Yeah, because we don't stand mm-hmm. on solid ground. And we, then, as human beings, we are stuck yeah. with indecision. We are stuck with not knowing. Right. And, and we have to make a decision as to where we're going to go right. and how we're going to get there. 
but the the point of the Christian atheist is not to be ashamed or regret making the decision for Christ. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Not only is there not anything wrong with that, it is one of the most rational stances you can take. Mm -hmm. There is no reason to be ashamed to be a Christian. And the Christian atheist can't prove any of it. Yep. And (laughs) And in the end, it comes down to faith. Right. Faith is the stance upon which all of human beings stand. Right. There is no other way to proceed. It is a matter of choosing what you stand upon, the raft that you sail upon as in the Phaedo of (laughs) Plato. Yeah. Yeah, Because you, you, you can't avoid sailing on some raft, some faith position. Right. Right, and the Christian atheist encourages you to sail on the raft of which Christ. Is Christ. Right. right, because it is the most rational, mm-hmm. the most powerful, and the most human of faith positions. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with it at all. Okay, so don't forget if you like to read or to listen to any of the information we talked about here. I mean, we talked about the Christian atheist, we talked about simple gifts, we talked about this essay by C.S. Lewis. Hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to organize all the links in the description so that you can access it, either YouTube or via the podcasts. If you do access it through YouTube, we ask if you could just subscribe. We would really appreciate that. Okay, so as always, if you're interested in knowing more about the Christian Atheist, why not check out the link in the description to John's book, The book is called Through the Looking Glass, The Imploding of an Atheist Professor's Worldview. And believe it or not, John is actually in the process of getting his next book written. So that's kind of exciting. Maybe not for everybody else, but at least for me, because it's been on his list for a long time. I keep putting it on his list. I keep putting it on his list every week. <laughs> um, yeah, we made real progress today for sure. Yeah. And as always, if you have the means, why not buy us a cup of coffee? There's a link to that in the description as well. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. We really appreciate that you do, and we appreciate you so much, and hope you have a great rest of your week. And we'll talk to you next week. And I love you, my dear. I love you, Johnny. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, You can have your religious cake and eat it, too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.